Well, hey, if you're new with us, uh, we have been walking through a series uh, through Advent, through the opening chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And so you can turn to Luke chapter 1 in your Bible. And we've been uh, focusing on the good news and the great joy that the coming of Jesus brings to the world. Uh, And so over the past few weeks, we've seen the angel Gabriel come to Mary and announce to her and tell her that even though she was a virgin... She was going to conceive and give birth to a son who would be the Savior, the Son of God, whom she should call Jesus. And then last week, we saw her break out in a song of thanksgiving and praise to God uh, for this blessing and for uh, this calling that he had placed on her life. And this morning, uh, we're going to be told the story of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, the story of his birth. Uh, But the intriguing thing about this text is that even though we're going to get the story of John the Baptist's birth, Uh, the focus of this text is still very much on Jesus. Uh, That that John the Baptist's story is about Jesus, that Jesus is the point. And that's really the thing that I I think this text shows us this morning. And what I want to lay out for you this morning, this text shows us that Jesus really is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament's hopes and covenants and promises. That the story of the Bible is just one big story of salvation that is completely centered on him. And so let's see this together. Luke chapter 1, we'll start in verse 57. Uh, We're going to get all the way through the end of the chapter, but we'll start just reading through verse 66. And so starting in verse 57, the very word of God to us this morning, it speaks to us like this. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And so the first thing we see here in this text is that God prepared the way for Jesus. And so at the opening of Luke's gospel, the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and tells him that uh, his wife Elizabeth is going to conceive, they're going to give birth to a son, and now that promise has come to pass, and she has conceived and has given birth. Uh, And it also told us that Elizabeth and Zechariah were old. They were advanced in years, and previously up to this point, Elizabeth had been barren. And so when she gives birth to this baby boy, all of her friends and relatives come to celebrate with her uh, and rejoice with her at at the way God has blessed her and the way God has been kind to her. And when the time comes for her to name this baby boy that she has given birth to, uh, that's when the fun kind of starts. Uh, because everybody around, all the friends and relatives are saying, hey, you should just call him Zechariah Jr. Uh, But she's like, no, his name is John. Uh, And and that isn't good enough for them. And so they turn to ask the dad, because surely Zechariah is going to want to call him Zechariah Jr., right? And if you noticed in the text, it said that they had to motion to him and make signs to him. So what happened at the beginning of Luke's gospel is that when the angel Gabriel came and gave this announcement and said, hey, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. God is going to give you a son. 
Zechariah didn't believe the promise. He, he disbelieved, and so the angel said, all right, that's cool. Uh, you're not going to be able to speak until these things come to pass because you didn't believe the word that I had spoken. And so for the past nine months, Zechariah has been shut up. He's been unable to speak, uh, and it also seems like he's been unable to hear if they're having to motion to him and make signs to him uh, to figure out what to call this baby boy. And so Zechariah motions for the Etch-A-Sketch, and somebody brings it to him, and he kind of scribbles out on it real quick. His name is John. Like, he's like, hey, I, I have been shut up for nine months. I am not going to screw this up again. The angel told me to call him John. I'm calling him John. And he's emphatic about it too. In Greek, it's the first word of the sentence for emphasis. What he writes is, John is his name. And so after Zechariah is obedient to this, his tongue is unloosed, he's able to speak again, uh, and the first thing he does, what we're about to read, is he just breaks out into a prophecy, uh, blessing God. And, and what we're going to see about this prophecy, what you'll notice is that it is filled with allusions to the Old Testament, to the Scripture. Somebody counted up to 33 allusions in these coming verses uh, to the Old Testament in some way. And, and so if the first thing that Zechariah speaks after he's been shut up for nine months is filled with Bible like this, what do you think Zechariah has been doing for the past nine months? Well, it seems very clear that what Zechariah has been doing has been saturating himself with the Scriptures, stirring up hope, because the angel Gabriel told him that all the promises that God has made to his people are about to come true. And look, I think this should be a deep encouragement to us because what this text shows us and what we see in Zechariah's example here is that Zechariah did not waste his suffering. He did not let it drive him away from God. Instead, he drew near to God through it. And the crazy thing about this is that he sinned. Like, he disbelieved. He didn't believe God when God finally answered his prayer, but he didn't let that be the end of his story. He didn't let that be the end of his walk with God. He didn't run away from God. He ran towards him and he got back up again because he knew God is gracious and he knew that God was going to forgive him. And so what we learn from Zechariah is that our suffering does not have to drive us from God. Uh, it can actually draw us closer to him. It can actually bring us near and we can actually come out of our suffering uh, a deeper person, a person more rooted in trust and in faith of God, even when our suffering is self-inflicted like Zechariah's was. Look, a lot of times when we suffer, it's not going to be self-inflicted like that. We're not going to be suffering as a direct result of our sin. But no matter what reason our suffering comes, if we will press into Jesus when we suffer, we can come out of it a deeper person, a person more rooted and built up in trust and faith in God. And listen, I'm not at all saying that that's going to be easy. It definitely will not. I'm just saying it's on the table for us. It is an option available to us. And look, I really don't have any good answers as to how you best do this when you walk through suffering like this. I think really the only answer I can give you is that you just cling. You hold on to Jesus. You cling to his word. You cling to hope. You hold on to him while he holds on to you and brings you through the suffering and shows you that even if everything else in your life around him crumbles, he will still be enough. Like This is what he did for Zechariah, and it's what he can do for us. And so Zechariah then, once he's able to speak, he 
breaks out into this prophecy, and once again, it's filled with allusions to the Old Testament. Uh, And the big overarching thing we see from Zechariah's prophecy is that he's telling us that God has kept his promises in Jesus. Let's look at it together in verse 67. It says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And so Zechariah launches into this prophecy, and the first thing he thanks God for is that God has visited us in Jesus. And notice in verse 68 that he talks about it in the past tense as if it's already happened, even though Jesus hasn't been born yet. That's not going to happen for six more months. And so Zechariah, who just nine months before this didn't believe the angel's announcement when he told him, now is so confident in God's ability to keep his promises that he's talking about it in the past tense as if it's already as good as done. And so he thanks God for visiting us in Jesus, and the way that plays out, the thing he thanks God for specifically in this first half of the prophecy uh, is that God has visited us in Jesus, and in doing that, he is keeping his promise in Jesus. He's tying up all the threads of the Old Testament. He says that God has raised up for us a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, just like he told us he would through his prophets, uh, in fulfillment of the mercy that he promised uh, to our fathers, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to remember his covenant, the oath and the covenant and the promise that he swore to Abraham. And so what Zechariah just did is he really just told us the story of the whole Old Testament. right? We've seen the beginnings of this in Genesis, when God creates a good world and puts Adam and Eve in the garden as the pinnacle of creation, and they were in the Garden of Eden, free from sin. They had life with God to the full, everything they could have ever wanted. Uh, But they rebelled against God. They tried to find life and freedom outside of God and go outside of Him. And when they did that, they brought death and sin and curse and brokenness into the world. Uh, But God does not leave us there. He immediately promises that one day He's going to send a Savior who will reverse the curse and will put an end to the death and sin and destruction that we have unleashed into the world. And so after this, God then chooses and calls Abraham and promises Abraham that through his family, uh, he's going to bring this Savior into the world who would reverse the curse, that through Abraham's family, every nation on the earth, all the peoples would find blessing and salvation. 
And he promises Abraham that his family uh, would grow and would be in the promised land so that they would be God's people in God's place, experiencing God's presence and God's blessing. And, And so the family of Abraham grows and continues to grow, and God takes them out of slavery to Egypt, and they become a nation and a people Uh, that becomes a kingdom. And they set up a king over themselves that doesn't work out in Saul, but then God establishes David, a man after his own heart, to be king over the people and lead his people. And and even though David looks promising in the beginning, we find out that he is not the promised savior, uh, that he's a sinner just like everybody else. But God promises David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that one of his sons uh, will reign on his throne forever and will be the Savior, will be the fulfillment of this promise, and will bring God's people back into life in full with God. He will remove the curse of sin and bring us back to the garden. But if you walk through First and Second Kings with us this year in our men's and women's Bible studies, you know uh, that after David's reign, uh, none of his sons fit the bill. None of his sons live up to this standard. And after his son Solomon's reign, the kingdom splits into two, a northern and a southern kingdom. And by the end of 2 Kings, both the northern and the southern kingdom have been taken into exile. Enemy nations come in and take them out of the promised land and take them into slavery back to their own nation. But, but when the people are in exile, and even before the people go into exile, the prophets promise uh, that God is still going to keep his promises, that a son of David is going to come and will reign as king and will bring God's people back from exile so that once again God's people will be in God's place with God's presence under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing, that life will be like it was in the Garden of Eden, only even better. And they, they promise that as bleak as it is in the moment, that exile and curse and death and brokenness will not get the last word, that hope does win out, and that there is a future for the people of God because a Savior, the Son of David, is coming. Let me just read one of these promises for you to show you what I'm talking about. Jeremiah 31, this is verses 10 through 14. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. And so whenever it is, when God keeps these promises, whenever this Savior comes, this isn't like just playing connect the dots or where's Waldo, like spot the Jesus, oh, we found him. Like, no, death is getting defeated. Like, life with God, the way that is meant to be, is coming back. God's people will flourish like a well-watered garden. Death will be no more. God will be our God. We will be his people. Like, we will languish no more. The hope of all of the world rests here on this coming Savior. And Zechariah is saying it's happening right now in Jesus. 
that Jesus is what everything was leading to, that he is the point, that he is the hope of the world, and he is. He is the one that the whole story is about. And listen, once again, this isn't just kind of a cool fact to play connect the dots with. This means real hope in the midst of any circumstance. It's why in his earthly ministry, Jesus does things like heal the sick and raise the dead and turn water into wine and cleanse lepers. He's showing us what life without the curse of sin and death looks like. What happens when the kingdom of God breaks in because the king is here in Jesus All the sad things are coming untrue. All the promises of God are being fulfilled. Death and the curse is getting rolled back so that one day it would be here no more. Listen, this is why we constantly talk here about how the Bible is one unified story leading us to Jesus, centered on Jesus, pointing us to Jesus. That's why every week as we walk through the book of Genesis, we're trying to show you how it points to Jesus, how Jesus fulfills it. It's all about him. It's all leading to him. He is our hope. He is our rescue. And that's really what we see Zechariah tell us in the back half of this prophecy. He moves to tell us that not only has God visited us in Jesus, God is going to save us through Jesus. And so Zechariah continues prophesying. In verse 76, uh, he lays out what, what John the Baptist's role in all of this is going to be. And if you've forgotten by now, this text originally was about John the Baptist's birth. And so you would expect that he would be the focus, right? I mean, like, how many, like, first-time parents do you know that at the birth of their child, they sing a song about somebody else's kid? Like, that, that's weird, right? But, but clearly, Zechariah's song is about Jesus, and I think that's kind of the point. Like, John the Baptist has significance because of his relation to Jesus, Because he is the one chosen to prepare the way for Jesus, to get the people ready for Jesus. He's not the point. He points to the point, and this is what he's called to do. And what John the Baptist prepares the way for, Zechariah tells us, is the salvation that Jesus is going to bring to his people. Look at verses 77 through 79 again. He says, "...to give knowledge of salvation to his people..." in the forgiveness of their sin, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I'm sure you heard the echo of one of the verses that we've read multiple times in the gathering. Uh, Hopefully the third time is the charm. Isaiah 9 verse 2, where it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so Zechariah is saying that the way that God is going to save us is by uh, giving light to us while we sat in darkness and guiding our feet into the way of peace. And I think this is a really helpful picture of what salvation is like. Because think about this. This is before phones and flashlights. And so let's say you're traveling somewhere and it gets dark. Like, there's nothing you're going to be able to do to get yourself out of that darkness, right? And maybe you would say, well, why don't you just make a fire? Well, hey, smart guy, like how are you going to make a fire uh, if you can't see the stuff to make a fire with, right? Like where are you going to do that? And, And so look, if you find yourself in that situation, there's nothing you can do, 
right? You're just stuck in the darkness. You can't create your own light. You can't get out of the darkness. You just have to sit in the darkness and wait for light to break in from the outside and deliver you from the darkness. You just have to wait for the sunrise to come because you can't fix this. But look, the problem uh, is that all of us do seem to think that we can find a way to fix it. You see, uh, I think all of us know uh, that we, at, at some level, are in darkness. All of us know at some level that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be and that there is something broken inside of us. But what all of us try to do is we look to all these other supposed lights to fix us and to get us out of the darkness. And, and so for some people, what we do is we look to education. We just think, man, if we could just educate people more, uh, then we would fix what's wrong in the world. The world would be a better place. Like our problem is we just don't know any better. Others of us look to just general self-improvement. We feel like, hey, if we can just exercise more, we can eat a little bit better, we can go organic, and we can nail it on our essential oils, uh, that will fix what's wrong with us. Others of us look to money, just thinking like, hey, if I can get a little bit more money, man, that'll give me the security and stability I need, that will drive out the darkness that I feel, and I will be happy. Others of us look to moral and religious improvement. We feel like we see this darkness in us, and we think, okay, if I can just knuckle down and be disciplined and try hard and go to church and conform to a standard, that will drive out the darkness that I see in me. But look, surely if you've got any self-awareness at all, you know that all these other lights that you've tried have not driven out the darkness at all. That they have not fixed it. None of these things, none of these other lights ever actually work because they don't get to the root of what our real problem is. Our problem is that we are in slavery to our darkness. We are in slavery to our sin, which means that we need more than another podcast or self-help book or diet plan or, or religious improvement to fix us. Look, we have more of those things. We have more wealth. We have more knowledge than anybody else at any other time in the history of the world, and it still has not fixed what's broken in us. We do not need to just be educated or improved on. We need to be delivered we need to be rescued. We need to be set free. We need to be saved. You see, Christianity, rightly understood, is actually the most realistic faith in the entire world because it does not look at the world with the sentimentality of, oh, if we could just get back to the good old days, if we could all just come together, if we could all just commit to love and peace with one another, then we'd be able to fix everything that's wrong in our world. No, it knows, Christianity rightly understood knows that this side of the Garden of Eden, after the fall, there are no good old days to get back to. Now it looks, Christianity looks at the darkness square in the face and calls it what it is, darkness. Darkness that we can't fix on our own. Darkness that we can't get ourselves out of. But as realistic as it is about the darkness, it doesn't look at the darkness without hope. It looks at the darkness square in the face and knows that darkness won't get the final say because light has broken in. It looks at the darkness and tells us that we can't fix ourselves. We can't bring light, but there is one who can, and he has come. The salvation and rescue has come because the king is finally here, because the light has dawned. Man, I, man, I hope somebody who needs this hears this as the good news that it is today. Listen, salvation is rescue from the outside in. It is not your best efforts to improve yourself. 
Like the message of Christianity and Christmas is not Jesus has come, so now get to work. It's not Jesus has come, so try hard to be a better person. And it's not Jesus has come, so work hard to be more religious. No, the message of Christmas is those, on those who were dwelling in the deepest darkness, light has shone. Light has come. It has broken in, and God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. God has delivered us when we could not deliver ourselves. And he has come to deliver us from our deepest enemy, from our real problem and our true slavery, sin. You see, the problem that we can't fix in ourselves, the reason we can't fix it is because it's in ourselves But Jesus, the light of the world, can. Jesus came as the light of the world, as the true light, and he lived the perfect life that no one before him had lived. He was the true and better Adam. And then he went to the cross, and on the cross, darkness covered the land for three hours while he absorbed all of our darkness. And he bore our darkness all the way to death. And he died, and he was buried, and it looked like the darkness had won. It looked like the darkness had snuffed out the light forever. But three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, the true light of the world, and we found the truth of John 1 coming true, that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, will not, cannot ever overcome it. It cannot ever stop it. And so, yes, the world is incredibly dark, but the light of Jesus' resurrection life overcomes it. It cannot be defeated by it. Look, this is the hope of Christmas. This is what the birth of Jesus means for us. It means that sin and darkness will not get the last word in your life if you believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus has come as the light and the life to shine his light into your life, and he has the power to make you completely new. He is not just offering you some moral principles or some life tips or some self-help to apply. He's offering you a brand new life, like freedom from the darkness that has enslaved you, freedom from the sin that you find yourself trapped in. This is why I just keep coming back to this reality that you have not and you cannot out the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Like your sin and your darkness is no match for him. Jesus is light and he is light. He is way more powerful and way more gracious than any mess that you can make of your life. And look, when you bring your sin to him, not only will he forgive your sin, his light will shine on it. Like your darkness will never be able to overcome him. He will overcome it and he will more and more make you new which means that the mess and the darkness that maybe you're walking in, even up to this morning as you come in here, does not have to be the last chapter of your story. You don't have to keep giving yourself over to the darkness that you've been giving yourself over to. And because notice what else Zechariah said in this prophecy, that God is saving us in this way so that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That means that Jesus is going to save us. He's going to forgive our sins and deal with them in a way that we might be freed up to serve God without guilt, without shame, and without fear. Let me try to give you a picture of what that looks like. Um, I I don't know if this is because I'm an introvert or a millennial or, or this is just my own weirdness kind of coming out. But anytime somebody texts me or emails me and says, hey, whenever you got a few free minutes, uh, can you give me a call? I just need to talk to you about something. 
I immediately just break out into a sweat and start running through that internal monologue of like, oh my gosh, what did I do? What did I say to make them mad at me? And 98% of the time, that's totally not what it is at all. 98% of the time, it's really nothing at all, but that still doesn't stop me uh, from spiking my anxiety levels up and worrying about this and running through all these scenarios in my head. Like, I don't care if we've been best friends for 10 years. If you text me that and say, hey, give me a call, I need to talk to you about something, I'm still going to start sweating and be like, oh gosh, what did I do? What did I say? What are they mad at me about? Like, I I really wish it wasn't that way, uh, but but that's just kind of where I'm at right now. And and I know that I'm going to get down from here and uh, check my phone this morning after we're done and have a bunch of text messages that say, hey, if you've got some, some free time this afternoon, give me a call. I need to talk to you about something. And look, I, I know you think you're being funny, but I just want to let you know, like, God's going to judge you for that. Uh, and so, but really, really, it's like, hey, hey, cuss me out, yell at me, tell me what a terrible job I'm doing. I'm really okay with all of that, as long as you tell me that's what you're going to do. Like, don't make me do the internal monologue of, oh my gosh, what did I do? What are they mad at me about? So listen, what it means when it says that Jesus has freed us up to serve God without fear, without guilt, and without shame means that we actually don't have to feel this way with God any longer. We don't have to do the internal monologue of, oh my gosh, is he mad at me? What did I do wrong? What's he upset with me about this time? Does he still like me? Can I still be close to him? Listen, you don't have to break out in a sweat. You can know that his feeling towards you is delight. It's love. It's welcome. It's not rejection. God says in Zephaniah that he sings over his people with loud singing. He exults with joy and loud singing over his people. He says that we are his treasured possession. The Bible says we have become sons and daughters of God the Father, that we are Jesus' bride. And so the fear of, do I measure up? Have I done enough to stay in his good graces? Does he still like me? All of that fear can be gone. Because the shame of past failures has been wiped away. And the guilt of our sin that would rightly keep us separated from God has been paid for. And God's heart towards us is delight. He delights in us. He longs for us to come to him. God opens up his very heart to us and he welcomes us to himself. Listen, it's such good news. I wouldn't believe it if he hadn't said it and proved it to us in Jesus. But he has. It's really true. This is really the good news. And so this is the offer on the table for you this Christmas. God has come in human flesh so that you could be made right with him, so that you could be his son or daughter and his friend forever, so that you could live into the salvation that Jesus has purchased for you. So that you, being freed from your enemies of sin and death forever, might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all your days. Look, you don't have to walk in darkness anymore because the light has come. Light has broken in. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this good news. That you are the light who has come to bring light into our lives and to make us brand new. Jesus, thank you for this good news. Thank you for the reality that you are our Savior, you are our King, and that you have come. Thank you that at Christmas we get to celebrate this great news that, God, you didn't stay up in heaven, but you came to rescue us. You fulfilled all your promises, and you you have been faithful to us in Jesus. 
And so God, I pray for us in this moment that, that, that what Zechariah prophesied about would be true of us, that because you have delivered us from our enemies of sin and death, we would be freed up uh, to serve you forever without fear, without guilt, without shame, in holiness and righteousness before you all our days. Jesus, make it so. Make us a people who increasingly walk in the freedom of the gospel and the good news that you bring. Make us look more like you as we walk in the freedom of your gospel. Thank you that you've opened it up for us and that you've brought us back into right relationship with God, our Father. In your name, amen.